This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. Hello and welcome to Update One. I'm Bill Lovelace, a longtime member of the National Press Club. Our topic today is press coverage of the coronavirus and the big financial hit that local newspapers are taking as they try to keep up with the public's demand for information on the crisis. Joining us from the United Kingdom to discuss this is John Alsop, who writes a newsletter at the Columbia Journalism Review called The Media Today. John, welcome to Update One. Thank you for having me. This is an unprecedented story for most of us today, one whose impact has been sudden, widespread, and, and shocking. What, what do you make of the news media's coverage of it? I think when when you're in the media criticism business, you hear very often, um, you know, that, that it's sort of impossible to generalize about the media as a whole. Um, I think that's true, but I also think that with other big stories that I've, you know, covered from a media standpoint, that it has been possible to, if not sort of overgeneralize about the nature of coverage, to at least kind of pull out certain trends in it, right? So sort of uh, election coverage, for example, particularly as it pertains to stuff on TV, you know, you can say that it's horse race journalism and people understand what that means, right? That it's kind of incessantly focused on who's up and who's down and, uh, you know, the polls and, and, and less focused on policy. That's obviously not to say that there is no policy coverage uh, and that everything is the horse race. But it's it's kind of a generalization that is, you know, true and, and makes sense. I think with this story, I'm finding that, like, any type of generalization whatsoever is essentially impossible. Because, as I wrote a couple of weeks ago, it's an everything story. It has a name, the coronavirus, but it, it reaches into every single aspect of all of our lives, um, you know, medically, in an informational sense, in an economic sense, in a political sense, certainly. And not only does it reach into all of our lives, but it's kind of completely uprooted them. And, and even the kind of fundamental, very human, mundane assumptions that you find go into most reporting are completely changed because, you know, again, things that we took for granted last week or the week before are no longer possible. Um, and, and that's clearly true of sort of huge swathes of the human um, population, you know, on, on multiple different continents all at once. So I think it's been incredibly disorienting for journalists to cover. And I think it's hard to generalize about. If pushed, I would say that on the plus side, we're seeing journalists in multiple different countries really rise to the challenge. You know, I, I wrote this a couple of weeks ago, and I think it still rings true. But I, I, whenever I scroll through Twitter or the newsletters that I read, I'll see a story on an aspect of coronavirus coverage that I, you know, hadn't considered before, sort of a, an impact on you know, just sort of plug one example out of the air, um, housekeeping staff in, in Los Angeles. I think that was a story I saw a couple of weeks ago, right? And so you go through and you're like, oh, you know, that's a really smart kind of um, take on, on this virus. This is a, a, you know, an effect of this virus that I hadn't considered, in, you know, in amongst all of the other massive effects that we're seeing. And I think, I think journalists are already rising to the challenge. On the negative side, I think that um, there's a huge data problem with this story. And that's not the fault of journalists. It's the fault of governments for not doing widespread initial testing to sort of find out what the behavior of this virus is in, in a way that we that we can know. But I do think that quite a lot of coverage is 
hanging on numbers that we know come from data that's very incomplete. Um, and yet I think often those numbers aren't kind of packaged with the degree of uncertainty that we should be packaging them with in light of the fact that we don't really know how much of the picture they, they show us. Is it useful to talk about the number of confirmed cases of the coronavirus in a given country? I mean, yeah, you could argue that's a useful number to have, and it's a number that, you know, crucially, we do have, and there are so many numbers that we don't. But it's not the rate of coronavirus cases in a country. It doesn't tell us much about the rate of spread, because certainly in the US and, and in the UK, where I'm from and based, and in many other countries too, there has been a, a failure of testing. And so I think maybe... There's a, I think journalists are doing a great job holding power to account in demanding testing, but I'm not sure we've quite grappled with the kind of centrality of that failure and how it kind of reaches into every single aspect of this story and, and sort of limits the amount of information we have. And I think that we are still on the whole, and again, pretty impossible to generalize with this story, but I think there is a degree of, you know, communicating to our readers and viewers numbers that don't necessarily paint a very useful picture as if they are the state. This story requires a, a sort of a, a sophistication in, in, in your approach that many stories, quite frankly, don't necessarily require. No, there's a scientific uh, basis that one needs to consider in, in, in sorting through a lot of the, the information you're getting from government officials. It's a perfect storm. It's an enormous amount to take in. The stakes could not be higher. We have to do it all, you know, not just quickly, but while watching this sort of like flash into every aspect of our lives all around us. And and of course, you know, journalists are not immune from this story. There's no such thing as parachute journalism with this story. It is everywhere. And journalists will potentially have the virus or, or no you know, friends or colleagues or family members who have it or, or who even have died from it. So this is confronting us on a very human level as well as a, as a professional one. And, and we sort of stand in equality before that fact. Or, or relative equality. And so, yeah, we have to kind of do all of this onboarding of information just in this, like, in intensely stressful real-time situation. And it's not like kind of cramming for an exam, or, and it's not even like doing a normal report where you may have a tight deadline, but you also may think, well, I don't know much about this thing that I have to write about, but I know there are sort of six experts who can help me out or who can who can sort of try and pithily summarize the sort of state of existing knowledge on this topic. There is no real state of existing knowledge on this topic. There are lots of experts who have a better idea than the average person on the street of what is going on, and many of those have made themselves extremely accessible to reporters, and that's a great thing, and I think we should approach them. But, you know, I read somewhere the other week, science is kind of messy, certainly in the early stages of learning about a new phenomenon. This is a completely new phenomenon. Oh, well, uh, you know, the, the idea that it's a coronavirus is not a totally new phenomenon, but it is a novel virus and a novel disease. And so we're kind of not just having to learn about it in real time, but so are the people who we would normally lean on as a crutch in our, in our work. And I think what you're seeing is the kind of debates that would normally be if not confined to academia, then certainly confined to academia and the specialized press that, that coverages the covers sorry um you know scientific topics. You're seeing those play out in real time, sometimes on television, and the kind of shortcut kind of authoritative voices in our stories. Well, they're still voices of authority, but you might read one story with one expert who be, believes based on the existing state of knowledge one thing. And then a story in an equally credible publication with an equally credible expert whose model tells them something completely different. And I think as a sort of lay reader, 
not let alone a journalist who actually has to make sense of this for lay readers. It's incredibly hard to get your head around. So I think I think it's kind of a perfect informational storm for us, and, I, and I'm full of admiration for all of the journalists who are walking headfirst into that storm when you know the sort of work environment challenges, both economically for the journalism industry and also in terms of our routine sort of practices of like being in an office with other reporters who can help us out or like going to talk to people where they are. Obviously, we can't do those things anymore. Or, you know, some people can, but but most people have been sent home. It's just an incredibly kind of overwhelmingly challenging set of circumstances in almost every way you could conceive. And I think I think it makes this enormously hard. In your work at the Columbia Journalism Review, your newsletter, The Media Today, you look at news coverage around the world. How does coverage in the U.S. compare with that in other countries? It's an interesting question, um, and I haven't spent so much time in the coverage of maybe enough countries to be able to give a, a complete answer to that question. I'm sort of in a weird position, because I, I should clarify, I used to be based in the U.S. Now I'm, I'm based back in the U.K., but I, but I still sort of spend the bulk of my time consuming U.S. news, because that's what I write about for CJR. But then I also consume British news. But when I consume British news, it's typically as a person who lives here and needs to know what's going on with our response to the virus and the guidelines and social distancing recommendations we're supposed to follow, etc. It's sort of a different way, I guess, that I'm engaging with with the coverage here than than, than how I'm engaging with the, with the coverage in the U.S. But, you know, I think this is a rare story which is having similar impact in a bunch of different countries. I think there are, while every country's circumstances are different, there are clear commonalities between lots of different countries, you know, and all sorts of different aspects of this. The failure to kind of test early and widely is a pretty universal failing, and I think that's certainly been a failing in both the US and here. And I think you see journalists asking the same kinds of questions about that. But also on the flip side, I think that you also see journalists in, in this country falling into some of the same data traps as, as I've seen in, in coverage in the US. So yeah, I think it's probably an event where you've seen the way coverage is done converge between countries more than more than reflect a divergence. Uh, I think a key difference actually in the way different medias have been able to cover this has been the extent to which their governments have prioritized open and clear communication. Uh, I know in South Korea, for example, which is a you know obviously a country that's been praised for its response to the coronavirus outbreak writ large, I know that they have made sort of transparent stream of information a, a top priority there. Um, and that has obviously made coverage better, not because you should parrot what the government is saying, but obviously, you know, all of us rely on our policymakers and our leaders to tell us in, in clear kind of continual terms what's going on. Well, obviously in the US and I think also in the UK and in other democracies around the world, you've got to a, a point where there is kind of a level of mistrust between government and the press going into this situation where increasingly you have politicians who are sort of overtly dishonest with the press uh, and sort of wear that as a, as a badge of honor. And I think, yeah, I think in, in lots of different countries, it's kind of been hard to take that sort of existing tension between governments and the press and, and, and convert it into coverage of this, this story. I think that's sort of been a universal, if not universal, certainly a, a challenge, which is common to, to more than a couple of countries um, as well. In the U.S., many of us uh, rely heavily on the big media. But, uh, you know, people across the country are looking uh, as well to their local newspapers. But those those news organizations are, are taking a, an enormous financial hit. It's an enormously challenging time 
to put it mildly, for local newspapers um, in the US, but also in, in other countries. Um, I've read dispatches recently about the sort of parlous state of local journalism in, in Canada and the UK, for example, and I'm sure it's also happening in, in other countries too. You know, obviously, I think it's important that we all remember that, you know, local news, print news, online news, was not in a generally good, healthy place before this crisis uh, came along. Now, you know, obviously people know that. I don't think people have been walking around thinking that local news in the US is in a kind of, has been in a good, healthy state. But I do think we need to remember that as much as the coronavirus is making the situation for local media much worse very quickly, it's a much more dangerous situation than just that, because you have outlets across the board which are already in a pretty kind of dire state of health. Um, outlets that probably would not have been able to maybe even survive, but certainly not be able to get through unscathed um, in the face of a, a much lesser challenge than this one. And yeah, obviously, you know, you have seen a huge economic fallout from this already. We don't know what the longer term economic um, impact is going to be, but clearly the sort of short term economic impact has been huge. And that has hammered advertising for pretty much all types of media across the board, I think. Companies that previously would have taken out adverts in local newspapers, for example, have found that they have not got the means to do that anymore. Big companies which do have the means to continue to take out adverts have, um, I think, in some documented cases, started declining to do so um, because they don't want to see their adverts placed against coronavirus coverage because they think the kind of doom and gloom of that will be bad for their brands. And it's kind of a bitterly ironic situation, actually, because this is a moment where Americans, just to, just like sort of other citizens of other countries um, all around the world, are turning to the media, both national and local, to find out what's going on. You know, you turn to national media to find out what the kind of government of your country is saying, um, what sort of broader national picture is. But you really do rely on your local outlets, too, to give you sort of not just information about your local leaders, but routine kind of local logistical information. What's been closed down because of the virus? What's still open? You know, what are the rules in your in your locality when it comes to sort of being locked in your house versus going out under what circumstances, um, etc. So there is this kind of intense interest in, in the news right now, both national and local. Local papers um, in markets across the country and in the US have reported readership kind of surging online. Uh, some of them have reported boosts to subscriptions as well. And yet, you know, the, the sort of catastrophic effect on advertising has kind of wiped out any benefit you see from that. And, and as a consequence, you've seen local titles already begin to, to make cutbacks. Some of those cutbacks have been furloughing staff. And, uh, you know, at local newspapers where staff have been furloughed, you, you'll, you know, often hear editors and newsroom managers saying, Oh, well, you know, it's only temporary. We're going to try and, and bring them back afterwards. I think there's probably reason to be skeptical about that, given that we're in a really kind of long haul, uncertain climate right now. But you have seen other, other newsrooms that upfront have made layoffs. You've seen uh, news organizations that have, um, cut their sort of, uh, number of days they're publishing per week. The Tampa Bay Times, for example, you know, sort of an independent daily newspaper in Florida has cut down to, to only publishing on Wednesdays, um, and Sundays when it was daily and other newspapers are, you know, taking steps to cut executive pay. I know that's been a thing that's happened. Gannett, which is the biggest publisher by circulation in, in the U S which got much bigger last year when it acquired uh, gatehouse. It's um at the time sort of the second biggest publisher by, by circulation, I think 
you know, has, has announced that um, staff who earn over $38,000 a year can expect to be furloughed for five days per month for the next three months. And executives there are going to take um, various types of, of pay cuts. I think the CEO of Gannett has said he won't take a salary at all until, until you know, we're out of the woods. So, yeah, it's kind of a range of different reactions, but they all kind of boil down to local newspapers, whether they're independent or sort of owned by big national newspaper chains, or in some cases, whether they're um, non-profits, um, having to look in, uh, at this kind of bad economic climate and, and already start to scale back what they're offering yeah. and how many people they can afford to employ. And, you know, there's no reason to think that situation is going to get better anytime soon, and, and in all likelihood, it will get much worse. Could it be the death knell for local journalism as we know it? It's possible, certainly. You know, one thing I'm trying to do during this crisis is be as humble as possible about looking into the future because, as I sort of said earlier, I think that every parameter of this, from the health side of it to the economic side of it, um, to the political side of it, you know, it's sort of impossible to know where we go next. And so I wouldn't want to predict anything with with certainty. But, you know, I think you're seeing kind of really radical suggestions and predictions in the media criticism space. Ben Smith, um, who used to be the editor of BuzzFeed and is now the, the media columnist at the, the New York Times, wrote a column over the weekend suggesting that we should just let national newspaper chains die. Uh, now, there's been some pushback against that argument, but but his basic suggestion was that um, the only good thing about these kind of big corporate newspaper chains is the journalists that they employ and the work they do, and there might be a possible different model, maybe a kind of network of, I think his suggestion was digital-only non-profit newsrooms that could be able to kind of be a life raft for these journalists and, you know, we can leave all the newspapers behind. Now, I think that poses a lot of challenges because I think if you were to switch to a kind of network of non-profit newsrooms, you would not be able to replicate the scale of existing newspaper chains, even though they are in a kind of decimated, bleak state. They still have a pretty big, they cover a pretty big area and lots of different sort of towns and cities that maybe wouldn't be fertile ground for a, a kind of non-profit replacement. And I think you're also dealing with the fact that these, a lot of these kind of old newspapers are, well, are very old, you know, in some cases over a hundred years old and have these kind of legacies of trust and, and respect and uh, sort of brand identity in their, in their respective markets that you might not just be able to replace with, with something else, particularly among older readers who might be accustomed to getting their news from, from print. But, you know, the point is, I think, more broadly, you know, these conversations are now being accelerated. They were conversations we were having before. Um, late last year, for, uh, for example, the Salt Lake Tribune in, in Utah switched from, you know, being a for-profit newspaper to a non-profit model. And there was sort of talk about other newspapers following suit. But these kind of conversations about how we might reimagine the, the sort of business model and the, and the face of local news in the U.S., I think they've just been massively accelerated by by the arrival of this crisis. And so it's possible that um, more newsrooms will come out of this and just see themselves not being as sustainable in their current form anymore and, and be able to kind of, you know, turn to a nonprofit model or, or something else altogether. I guess others might just limp on even more decimated than they were going in. Uh, I think you're likely, as, as Ken Doctor has been writing in his um, column for Neiman Lab uh, consistently for like the last year or so, but, but, but particularly over the last couple of weeks, probably likely to see a a consolidation of ownership at the at the corporate level, um, which is already a sort of very consolidated situation. But Olden Global Capital, which is a hedge fund which owns a bunch of newspapers through its media arm and is notorious for making cuts at those papers. Last year, it became the largest shareholder in Tribune, which is obviously another newspaper company. Ken Doctor has been hearing that, that those two will likely announce a, a full-on merger by the end of June. So 
again, I, I want to kind of be cautious about predicting the future in any way at the moment, but I think at the very least you're going to see sort of years worth of this kind of continual process of the erosion of local news accelerated into into a period of a few months and you know whatever the outcome of that is it's it's unlikely to look very good that was john allstop he writes the media today newsletter for the columbia journalism review for update one i'm bill loveless thank you for listening Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's Update the Number One Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.